Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West here, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. This episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast is brought to us by our good friends at the United States Concealed Carry Association. Being a responsibly armed American is both an honor and a responsibility. It's not one to be taken lightly. If you own a gun, then you need the self-defense education training and self-defense liability insurance that you get with a USCCA membership. Click learn more below right now to explore your membership options, which are risk-free with the USCCA's bulletproof money-back guarantee. Guys and gals, the U.S. Concealed Carry Association was founded to help responsibly armed Americans like you and I. They're committed to providing life-saving self-defense resources to help you and your family be safe. When you activate your membership, you'll automatically get life-saving self-defense education, industry-leading training, plus self-defense liability insurance. Don't wait until it's too late. Click learn more below right now. And as always, the USCCA is not an insurance company. A policy has been issued to the USCCA by Universal Fire and Casualty Insurance Company. That policy provides the association and its members with self-defense liability insurance subject to its terms, conditions, limitations, and exclusions. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. And I am joined by Adam B. Coleman. He is the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, an op-ed writer, public speaker, and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Adam is a columnist for Human Events, a frequent contributor for the New York Post, and has articles published in Newsweek, The Federalist, The Epoch Times, Daily Mail, The Post Millennial, Unheard, Schoon TV, Free Black Thought, Life News Headquarters, and Human Defense Initiative. He has also appeared on Fox News, Newsmax, The Hills Rising, Talk TV, Sky News Australia, OAN, The First TV, and numerous podcasts. Adam was born in Detroit but raised in a variety of states throughout America. He writes openly about his struggles with fatherlessness, homelessness, and masculinity. He is always questioning the world around him, even if they are uncomfortable questions to ask. He strongly believes that we should have the ability to speak freely and is now advocating for people who feel voiceless to be heard. He is attempting to help change the narrative and the way we discuss cultural narratives by being honest, humble, and resolute. And he joins us now from New Jersey. Adam, thanks so much for joining us here at the Steadfast and Law Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you were born in Detroit. How long did you stay in Detroit before, I guess, you moved to another area? Yeah, I lived in Detroit till I was about five years old. Okay. Um, and, and then we moved to Virginia for about a year 
uh, for about a year or so and then to New York. I was there basically till seventh grade and then moved to New Jersey. Now, when you talk about these issues of fatherlessness, homelessness, and the masculinity issue, you know, when I go back and look at the, you know, the failures of the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, where he basically kicked strong black men out of the home and replaced mm -hmm. it with the government, you know, today do you see that that is, you know, really a catalyst that brought about a lot of the failures and problems we see in our urban black communities? Yeah. Um, and it's not just uh, so people understand it's not just a, a poor black issue. It's also a middle class black issue as yes. well. Um, and what I try to do in my book is have people understand, even with the topic of fatherlessness, and we're being specific talking about black Americans. I'm using it as a case study because it's actually an American issue mm -hmm. in, in its entirety. Um, when I talk about fatherlessness, most of the people who reach out to me don't look like me. Um, nearly 25% of our kids in America grow up in separate homes. Um, and we're number one in the world in that family dynamic. So the the black situation is something that has been going on for quite a while. But now it's it appears much more of a bigger problem for white Americans. Um, and, in, and actually, Hispanic Americans are right behind black Americans as well. Um, you know, it's increasing for, for basically everybody. Um, and, and I think the social issues that we talk about on a daily basis, uh, we talk about gun violence, we talk about um, mass shooters, things of that nature, uh, especially the school shooters. There is a, a long history down to how they grew up, their, fa their family dynamics, mm -hmm. uh, and whether it's from divorce, whether it's from uh, growing up without both parents in the home, um, some sort of childhood trauma. There's a lot of that that's stemming from how they how they were raised and, and what kind of traumatic experience they experienced. Um, you know, neglect is one of those things. And that's what I experienced as a child. You know, I was just fortunate that my mom left Detroit. But I sometimes I wonder if we stayed in Detroit, what, what would have happened to me? Um, and we moved to a more rural area and then suburbs after that. But um, not a lot of kids are as fortunate as I was. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember on the Black Lives Matter website, they, they talked about, they admitted that they were against the traditional nuclear family. And, you know, when you look at that core issue, it has definitely had adverse effects in the black community. But like you say, it transits through all communities. It almost seems like what the left has done with the destruction of that traditional nuclear family is purposeful and intentional. In some ways, I think it really just depends on who. Um, the way I kind of see it is that there are people who are well-intentioned, true believers, and then there are people who are malevolent, who know better. Um, and I think that we have far more uh, well-intentioned people who want to do something that they believe is right, but they're ignorant as far as the outcomes that it may produce. Mm -hmm. So I could understand in some situation you have some liberal uh, politicians who say the government has the ability to help people. We just need to give them more money or we just need to install this program. And the people who are malevolent understand what that will actually do, but they just don't say anything to anybody. And so they just let it happen. So, you know, unfortunately, I think both sides kind of come together in many bad government policies. Um, there are a lot of well-intentioned people who just advocate for terrible things. 
You know, it's interesting because uh, Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote a book kind of about that called Please Stop Helping Us because yeah. you're right. You know, if, if you got a problem with education, let's throw more money in it. Well, maybe that's not exactly the problem while we continue to have these failing schools. So let's talk about your book, Black Victim to Victor. And that's what I always, you know, come back to. You know, I was raised in a, in a household down in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia, and my mom and dad said that, you know, you're either a victor or you're a victim. Uh, and, and that really is a simple way of looking at things because you either want to get out there and do your best to be a champion or someone is going to be looking at how they can, you know, own you. Uh, and, right. and it's not the physical enslavement, but it's an economic enslavement. It's a mental enslavement that we see. Mm -hmm. So what's the thesis, what's the premise of your book, and what are some of the anecdotal examples you have there? Yeah, so the, the book, of, um, like I said, it was kind of like using race as a case study for a greater, greater problem. Um, I wrote it right after George Floyd, mm -hmm. especially because of the narrative of the biggest problem for Black Americans is racism and systemic racism, or however you want to put it. And for me, the answer is simple. It's disconnected families. It's fatherlessness. Um, and so the anecdotal situation was telling my personal story growing up without my father um, and being very, very open about how I saw my father and how I felt and what it was like for me as a child to grow up in that situation, how vulnerable I was. And also at the same time, because I think it's very easy for us to say did beat dad, but we don't ask enough questions about the women who choose these men. And in my case, you know, I love my mother, but she chose a man who was already married and she had two kids with them. And I see the hurdles that I went through and my sister went through. And I, I think about all the, the children who are growing up in that situation. My sister and I turned out okay. And I think sometimes we look at children from single parent homes who turn out okay and say, see, yeah. it's not important. But what they're, what they're missing is that we appear okay, but it took me decades to get to this point. Um, I'm, I'm 38 years old now, and I tell people it, about five years ago, I started feeling like a man. And it's because it took me a long time to understand what even a man was Meanwhile, I had to raise a son starting at the age of 21. And it, it was my son who helped me to understand how impactful my position is, how much he looks up to me. Um, and my, my goal was to not be my father. That's all I knew as far as being a father. So it, to kind of answer your question, the thesis of the book is really talking about family at the core of it. It's talking about how impactful it is to have um, both parents in the home, how we need to criticize bad ideas, um, the malevolent people that exist when it comes to, uh, I call them the, the ivory tower black elites, um, <laughs> who, you know, who act like they have so much, so many issues in life. Uh, it reminds me of like Oprah Winfrey when she wasn't able to get into the, that high class store in Switzerland. Oh, I can't believe the racism and completely ignoring the economic factor uh, and how fortunate she actually is. Um, but just weaponizing race and, uh, and using it to their advantage. But I wanted to write a book ultimately at the end where it says that all these different issues that we're talking about, black, this, black, that is actually felt by a lot of people yeah. who don't look like me. And one thing I'm really grateful of is that the book has been read by people who don't live in America 
but understand what I'm saying and see it in other communities and other situations and other countries. And it's a human experience, you know, uh, growing up fatherlessness doesn't feel different, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, you know, from the UK, it's the same type of human experience and, and the same type of um, possibilities of struggle that you may go through. Um, it's just in a different location and different skin. You know, it's almost as if we're swimming against a current, but how do we break this cycle? Because what I just heard you say was it was a healing process for you to get on the road when you had your son at 21 and you were committed to, I got to do better for my son than what was done for myself. So how do we break this cycle? Because when I look in the urban centers in those communities, we're talking about second, third, some fourth generation of this issue. So where, what's the first step? I mean, what's your prescription for improvement and change? Uh, you cannot change what you don't acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And I see too many people not acknowledging that this is a problem. And so we can't change it. Uh, we have too many people who've accepted the status quo that, oh, well, you know, that's just what happens. And, and saying, no, uh, we need to, like, for example, as much as I'm talking about this now, I grew up in a way where I repeated that cycle and my son um, grew up out of wedlock. I'm not with his mother, but I co-parent the best that I can. And I see him every week and we have a great relationship. But I'm always behind as a father because he doesn't live with me. And he's he is missing something by not growing up with me, uh, you know, 24 seven. I'm trying to constantly correct that. And I'm trying to correct that through this message to tell people, do not be like me and do not create a child that I, you know, that like the type of situation that I went through when I was a kid. And I'm actively trying to stop that cycle for my son. And that is the only thing that we can to start to do. We have to acknowledge the problem. And when we see the problem, even if, even if you messed up, even if you're that parent who, who grew up in that situation or who raised a child in that situation, you have to acknowledge that there's a problem and tell them to stop the cycle. Um, make them mindful of reproduction. Make them mindful of how are you mate selecting? Make them mindful of this because I see too many people who just kind of go with the flow and how people make them feel in the moment. But I swear, if people looked at the person that they're about to lay down with as a person who may have their child, it'd be it'd move a lot different in life. And I think we have to acknowledge and family plan, and we don't family plan enough. Do you, so you think it's a cultural thing that, you know, over the last, what, two, three, four decades has really ingrained itself. And we have, you know, again, said that, yeah, you know, the whole thing about mommy and daddy in the home, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Just go out and live your life and do what you want. Do you, do, do you think that we have to fight against that as it's permeated in the, in the music that we hear and everything and the the preaching of irresponsibility and lack of accountability? Well, when you have an economic machine surrounding, uh, you know, hip hop, I, th I don't think that helps. I think that contributes to um, degeneracy, but I, I wouldn't put as much behind it because, you know, I hear artists say, we're just mirroring what we see. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the reason that they use. And in some respects, they're kind of right. I think we there's far more influence coming from the people we grow up around, our you know, our neighbors, um, the people we're surrounded by, and especially who's in our home. And 
if you grow up in a single parent environment and no one acknowledges that there's a problem, um, you know, we create these phrases, I don't need a man, um, I could do bad all by myself. We, we reinforce single parenthood. We reinforce having a matriarchy within the black family rather than a, uh, a family. You know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, family, family, but this is not, what we're looking at is not family. The American problem is not really a family. These are people who are related to you who live all over the place. <laughs> That's yeah. not a family. And I'm, I'm trying to have people kind of look deeper and understand that your actions as an adult impact your children greatly. And I think there are a lot of children who are too scared to say how they really felt growing up because they're afraid of how it makes their mother feel. Wow. You know, we just saw this election in Chicago with someone that I don't think, you, you know, you said you got to admit there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Here's an individual that doesn't seem to admit that there is a problem. And if he does say that there's a problem, the solutions that he's offering is, you know, throw more money at it or it's racism, whatever. What will it take? And and specifically, I want to address it to the black community. What will it take for the scales to come off their eyes and for them to start demanding better as far as elected representation instead of continuing on with the same grievance uh, race hustlers? I guess that's the best way to call it. Well, you know, I, I think the grievance race hustlers, um, it's very interesting because I think most of their um, most of their money and their support doesn't come from people who look like me and you, You're right. to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, you know, someone like Al Sharpton, I've talked to black people about Al Sharpton. They all kind of agree that he's a shysty guy, but who gives him, uh, who gives his nonprofit a million some odd dollars each year that he can live in the Upper East Side? It's not coming from black people. It's coming from corporate America. It's coming from uh, all these different NGOs. It's coming from all different sources of money, but guess what? He's the mouthpiece or one of the mouthpieces for black Americans. I think what will help, um, and this is what I try to do in my writings. If I have people look at class more than race, mm -hmm. then that is actually what tips the scale a little bit. When they see like, hold on a second, this guy is making it sound like he might get shot any moment by the cops. He lives all the way up in these ritzy suburbs <laughs> yeah. You know, with Officer Dan, who waves at him, he's not dealing with urban policing. He's not dealing with lower class situations, which may maybe in some respects, uh, when the left talks about, you know, police brutality, maybe in certain places, maybe in certain situations, that's true. Right. But this guy is not dealing with that. Right. If it were, trust me, it'd be all over the news, but they aren't. Yeah. It's because class, especially in America, but pretty much anywhere class is a big element as to how much how many social issues you may experience and what's very funny to go back a little bit on black lives matter and and all these other people the people who scream the loudest about not having the nuclear family tend to grow up in nuclear families and tend to get married right because marriage is an institution of wealth in this country yet they tell people not to get married and, and, and that's the part, that's the elitism that I can't stand, is when they preach one thing and live their life a completely different way, not in small ways, not be a better person, and they make a couple sins, and in very huge ways. 
So when you tell people it doesn't matter, you can do bad by yourself, or like Beyonce says, all my single ladies as she's getting married, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's stuff like that, that um, it's the ruse that we push on people to keep degeneracy alive and to make more money off of them. Where do we go from here? What 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 is your outlook? Do you see things changing? I mean, of course, it has to be incrementally, but do you think that we can restore what I remember growing up you where you did not see too many kids that did not have the mommy and the daddy in the home. And you did see all of those other social ills that were not part of the everyday life. Can we get back mm -hmm. to that? Um, I think that, like you said, change is generally incremental. I think the good thing is one, we're sitting here having this conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't always uh, of this particular mindset. I'm a former Democrat myself. People change. And I think that uh, there are a lot of younger people, especially on social media, who are asking more questions. You know, we're in the information age. And on top of that, we're looking at our parents more than maybe previous generations to ask, did they make the right choices? Right? Did this generation do the right thing? Um, we're asking more questions and we're becoming more curious. I don't see some massive swing of change happening in, in my particular lifetime per se, or maybe in this particular generation. Um, but I think that we're trending in that direction. I think when, with independent media, people are talking, you have YouTube where people are having relationship discussions. One of the biggest things for, uh, for, for black young people is actually relationship discussions and how they see each other and what they want. Um, and there are a lot of people who are far more curious than when I was growing up, and they have access to far more information. Uh, even even though, you know, when I was a kid, the internet was just coming about and people were yeah. jumping on AOL. But we're far more curious, we're far more open and, and um, willing to criticize a little bit more. So I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist, just generally speaking. Um, but I think as long as we're inching in that direction of change, um, you know, I think that's a that's a positive thing. And we can we can only change one person at a time, you know, individually um, or hopefully with my book, uh, these, this conversation, other conversations I've had. Maybe it just has people just second guessing their actions. Um, maybe it just has them having that one conversation with their kid, having people think. Um, so, yeah, I'm optimistic. Well, I want to tell you, Adam Coleman, uh, you should be the type of young man that we are elevating and having out there uh, as a role model and an example instead of those two legislators down there in the state of Tennessee <laughs> who, who are just clowns. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. they're just clowns. And we have yeah. got to get rid of the clowns in the black community and get back to men and women of honor, integrity, and character. Now, uh, closing out, uh, where can people find your book, Black Victim to Black Victor? And where can people find you out there social media-wise? Uh, yeah, definitely go on Amazon. That's the number one spot. Um, you can purchase it on there. Um, I'm definitely all over Twitter. That's the most active social media, uh, at wrong underscore speak. But um, definitely go to my Substack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Um, it's not always political. Most of the time, it's telling stories, life lessons, um, things that we can connect with uh, on, a, on a deeper level, human level. Um, so I'm trying to 
not just be about race or politics, but just humanity itself. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. And, you know, I'm getting long in the tooth, as I tell people. So I got to <laughs> pass that torch on to someone. And you're definitely the type of young man I want to pass the torch and to continue this fight. Uh, because it is a generational fight for our communities and for America. Absolutely. So God bless you, Adam, and God be with you. And thank you for joining us here at the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Thank you. God bless you. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. And a special thanks to Adam B. Coleman for sharing his thoughts and perspectives. And please go out and get his book, Black Victim to Black Victor, because it's so important that we rectify things in the black community. And if you like this podcast, please click the like button, share it with others, because we're here to serve you. God bless. Until next time. See you later. Before they burn it down.